Good morning, everyone. Uh, as uh, Francois has mentioned, the title for today's sermon is The Healing Power of Christ. And it's good to see everyone opening up your Bibles to Mark 1, verses 29 to 39. We'll read that in a moment. Um, is a, a tremendous passage that presents clearly two aspects of Christ that we'll delve into. Firstly, it, it tells us about Christ's power over infirmity uh, with the miraculous healing of Simon's mother-in-law, which is then followed by uh, an event well into the night of many, many healings and uh, the casting out of demons. And then as word spreads uh, throughout the village of Capernaum, you know, the whole village is, is gathered outside the house. They've just brought people in from everywhere to experience the power of Christ. And, and these miracles of Christ actually authenticate his identity. They tell us very clearly who he is. As Mark opens his gospel account, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, there's no guessing as to who Jesus is. He is God, the Son. But then incredibly, the following morning, as, as more and more people gather to experience healing uh, from Jesus, he promptly tells his disciples that healing physical illnesses and, and uh, removing spiritual oppression is not the reason that he has come. No, he has come to preach the gospel. And in this, it shows, secondly, Christ's power over iniquity, his power over sin. Receiving physical restoration from illness has no eternal impact. Physically well people are still spiritual sinners and under the wrath of God. And as a, a consequence, uh, they will get sick again. And eventually their bodies will die. Jesus came to bring true healing, the forgiveness of sins and restoration to God. And the only way that people can receive this healing is for the message to be proclaimed and for them to respond in repentance of their sins, to turn away from their sins and to turn to Christ in faith. Of course, Jesus is more than the proclaimer of the message. He is the proclamation itself. For it would be through his obedient life, his sacrificial death and his bodily resurrection that the sins of his people might be atoned for. So let's look at the healing power of Christ and let's read from Mark 1, 29 to 39. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. 
And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So we begin with seeing Jesus' power over infirmity. And immediately, this passage begins, immediately. It's Mark's favourite connecting term. The action, the pace of Mark's gospel is suited for his practically minded Gentile readers. And indeed, it's no doubt suited for modern Gentiles like you and me, whose attention span is not quite uh, that high. And it shows the intent of Jesus and the events surrounding his earthly ministry. So immediately he left the synagogue. It, it directly connects this episode to what we looked at last week, the preceding episode. He's come from the synagogue and he's come to the home of Simon and Andrew. It happened straight away. Jesus preached in the synagogue and he cast out this this demon. He is the authoritative teacher, as we saw. And then he's come to the house of Simon and his brother Andrew. Uh, This chronology is reflected in the parallel account in Luke chapter 4. There's an event in the synagogue and they walk down the street to Simon and Andrew's place. But interestingly, this is... Not actually the case in Matthew's Gospel. Um, If you flick over for a moment to Matthew chapter 8, and in verses 14 to 17, we see the account of Jesus healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law. But notice what comes before it. What comes before it is the healing of a centurion's servant, which is in chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. This same event, the healing of the centurion's servant, uh, is not recorded in Mark's Gospel, but it is actually in Luke's Gospel. But remember that Luke recorded the account of Simon's mother-in-law being healed in chapter 4, but then the healing of the centurion's servant is recorded in Luke chapter 7. So, Hang on a second. Mark's order says that the centurion servant was healed. Uh, sorry, Matthew's order it was saying that the centurion servant was healed and then Simon's mother-in-law. Luke's order, which we can assume is the same as Mark, he has Simon's mother-in-law being healed and then the centurion's servant. And the big question that this raises uh, is does this conflicting order mean that there is an error in the scriptures now so before we even get into the the actual text of this episode we actually have to address this question are we dealing with a true account here a trustworthy account before we even look at the details of the account of course the answer to that is yes we are dealing with reliable and truthful words here There is no issue and we can see that there are two reasons why there isn't any conflict between the gospel accounts. And these reasons which we'll go through 
uh, can actually be applied, and I really encourage you to do that. When you study uh, the Word and you come across other texts in Scripture that on first glance seem to undermine the Bible's integrity, but they really don't on closer inspection. And this is really important. We live in a very cynical and sceptical age where people critique the Scriptures as unfaithful and unreliable. And so we need to know how firstly, uh, why we can trust the Scriptures and how to respond to that when these claims are made. So there's two aspects we need to to understand. Firstly, uh, we need to look at the signals in the passage. So Matthew 8, verse 14 says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. While Mark 1.29 states, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of, of Simon. Matthew simply states, and when Jesus entered Peter's house. It's not a specific reference. It is a vague time signal and it doesn't necessarily indicate chronology. That is, after Jesus healed the centurion's servant, then he healed Simon's mother-in-law. No, it's not then. Matthew simply says, when. The great 5th century theologian Augustine of Hippo He wrote a harmony of the Gospels, that is, uh, lining up all the accounts of the four Gospels and showing how they work together in harmony, not in discord, uh, not against each other. And he's writing in the the 5th century here, so 400 400 AD, and he's showing that even then, right back in the beginnings of of the church, there was... Uh, an effort to show that the inerrancy of Scripture really matters. It matters whether or not we have a truthful and reliable text. The inerrancy of Scripture has always been of great and fundamental importance to the church. So, Augustine, he writes concerning Matthew's account, and he says this, Matthew has not indicated the date of this incident, that is to say, He has specified neither before what event nor after what occurrence it took place. And then he goes on. We are to understand that he has introduced for record here something which he had omitted to notice previously. And so this makes perfect sense of what Matthew has done. In Matthew 8 verse 5, uh, Matthew tells uh, the account of Jesus coming into Capernaum and then meeting a centurion who who asked him to heal his servant. While Matthew is writing about this account, he remembers the Holy Spirit brings to his mind an event of importance that happened earlier on in Jesus' ministry in the same town. And so Matthew says, in effect, do you know what else happened in Capernaum? When Jesus entered Peter's house, he healed his mother-in-law. As Augustine states, when the order of times is not apparent, we ought not to feel it a matter of any consequence what order any of them, that is the gospel writers, may have adopted in relating the events. And so when we look at the signals in the passage, uh, we see there is no conflict between these accounts. But the second thing we need to, to look at is 
the scope of the Gospels. And by Gospels, I mean the four Gospel accounts. The second reason why there's no issue uh, when we find the same account recorded in, in different order between the four Gospels concerns the scope or the purpose of the Gospel writers. Mark and Luke and indeed John, uh, they are far more chronological in their Gospel accounts. Matthew, however, is far more thematic. Uh, he has five main teaching uh, discourses or teaching blocks uh, that provide the structure for his gospel. And then events are actually linked in under those uh, main themes for each section. And you can see that if you open up any study Bible and look at the structure of Matthew's gospel, you can see uh, that effect. But here's the thing. None of the four gospel writers explicitly claim they are out to make simply a chronological account. Uh, in the book, A Harmony of the Gospels, uh, published in 1978, so we're, we're 1,500 years later and we're still working to ensure that we have a reliable text here. Uh, Robert Thomas and Stanley Gundry explain it this way. They say, The fact that the Gospels do not always give their material, whether of word or event, in the same order, is a problem only if it is assumed that they must follow a strict and uniform chronological sequence, or if they categorically state that they will use only a chronological sequence and then proceed to violate it. The latter cannot be shown to be the case, and the former assumption is clearly inappropriate. While some sort of chronological arrangement might usually be expected to prevail, such is not a necessary condition of good writing. The Bible is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and as such, it is the ultimate authority. And so despite criticisms that are thrown to undermine its truthfulness, we can have a, a complete assurance and confidence in every single word. Why? Because it is God's word and he is perfect and holy and righteous and does not lie. Now, with that slight but important and I hope encouraging digression, let's actually get into the text of Mark 1. Let me read verse 29 again. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were from Bethsaida, which was, is further around uh, to the east of um, the Sea of Galilee, which John 1.44 tells us, uh, but they'd subsequently moved to Capernaum. Now, interestingly, in 1968, archaeologists found what is highly likely uh, Simon's house in Capernaum. It's only a short distance uh, from the location of the synagogue. And the, the sizable structure uh, shows that the fishing business was good for Simon uh, and his brother, and his work partners, James and John. But it is not, uh, it's not showing off of their place that is of Simon Peter's greatest concern. No, there is something far more personal uh, on his heart. Verse 30, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, there it is again, that immediate, they, they did it straight away, they 
they told him about her. It was a concern that they, they all shared because this dear older woman was terribly sick. Now, in a culture where hospitality is of huge importance, uh, for her to not get up and actually greet Jesus when he arrived showed just how sick she was. Uh, Luke, the doctor, uh, tells us in his account that it was actually a high fever. She was terribly ill. It's probable uh, that she was living with her daughter and son-in-law because her husband had died. And so Simon and his family, they truly felt the burden to care for this loved woman. Now that Simon Peter was married is confirmed uh, by 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5 where where Paul, in, in defending his rights as an apostle, he states this, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas being the Aramaic for Peter. Now, the fact of Peter's marital status undercuts the the Catholic practice of electing candidates for priesthood from among those who voluntarily renounce marriage. I mean, if Peter, who is supposedly the first pope, uh, was married then why should a different standard be placed on all who follow after him? But he was married, and his mother-in-law was gravely ill, and so he, along with the others, appealed to the Lord. And verse 31 reveals Jesus' compassionate response. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That's so simple, so understated. Here is this incredible miracle and it's just encapsulated in a few words here. So powerful. There's no show, there's no song and dance attached to this. As opposed to modern day faith healers, uh, there's no controlled environment uh, set up here. Uh, There's no dimming of the lights. There's no hypnotic music, Uh, there's no command to have faith, no. Jesus simply takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and the fever goes. Luke adds that Jesus also rebuked the fever, which means Jesus gave a strong command to the fever to stop doing what it was doing. Just like he rebuked the demon in the synagogue, telling it to stop oppressing the man. Here he rebukes the fever, telling it to stop affecting the woman. But even this action is not some mystical incantation. It's such a normal thing, if we can say normal about this. It's so normal in the way that he does it that Mark doesn't even bother to record his words. It doesn't stand out to Mark. All this highlights the person of Jesus. He is the divine Son of God. He is the eternal Word made flesh because only God has the power to heal. Listen to these words from the Old Testament which affirm that. Exodus 15 verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, And do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. 
I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Psalm 103, verses 2 to 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. The proof of Jesus' power and person is seen in the equally simple and understated response of Simon's mother-in-law. The text simply says the fever left her and she began to serve them. She was absolutely healed in an instant. She didn't need the next following days to, to recover. You know, when you have a fever and, it, and it, then it breaks, but for the next couple of days you're just taking it a bit easy, walking slowly, don't want to bend down too quickly or you'll feel too wonky. No, she is absolutely healed in an instant. She needed no recovery time. She just got up and performed the task she would have been doing had she not been sick. She was healed so completely and so quickly, it was as if she had never been sick. And boy, oh boy, did word get out fast. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Remember, this was a Sabbath day. He preached in the Sabbath earlier that day. A word had begun to get out that he cast out this demon. Now word begins to get out that he's, he's healed this woman. But they, the Jews were under the restriction of the, the Sabbath, so they couldn't come straight away. There was rules added to God's law that restricted traveling too far. Uh, there was rules added to God's law uh, restricting carrying anything or anyone. Well, once the sun goes down and to signify the end of the Sabbath restrictions, there is a, a mass collection of all who are sick and all who are demon-possessed. And just note again there that the first century people were not idiots. They knew the difference between someone being sick from an illness and someone being in, uh, oppressed by a demon. They knew the difference. It says so right here. And they knew uh, what had happened that day in the synagogue and then in Simon's house and they were taking their friends and family to the one who could heal both conditions. When Mark says they brought, it literally means they began bringing. It was a constant flow throughout the whole evening. Mark tells us in verse 33, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. When we understand that Capernaum was located on a highway between the northern and the southern areas, we can see just how easily and quickly Jesus' fame spread. On this night, extraordinary things were taking place in that tiny fishing village. Verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This doesn't mean that out of 
all those who came, Jesus was able to heal many. No, it means that all who came, and there was many, all who came to him, he healed. And Jesus wasn't any specialist focusing on a particular area. No, he was, he was more of a GP. There were various diseases and he healed them all. And there were many demons and he cast out them all. In Matthew's account, he sees this as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew 8, 17, he writes, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now Isaiah 53, from which this is uh, quoted, is basically the gospel according to Isaiah. It is about the suffering servant who would take the place of his people to give them life through his death and resurrection. But this promise about healing of disease and illness, is this a promise that we can affirm today? Yes, absolutely it is. Does this mean Christ will heal all of our sicknesses today? No, it does not. We affirm the truth that Christ is the healer and we know this will come fully at his return when our lowly bodies are transformed to become like his glorious body, raised to indestructibility. And so what he will do in the future is assured by the power he exhibited in the past. While God can and does heal today in answer to prayer, And according to his will and purposes, I believe that the miraculous gift of healing that we see in the New Testament just is not in existence today. And let me tell you why I think that. I mean, people people say that God has always wanted to uh, heal his people and that we should expect the same today. But when we look at the testimony of Scripture, we see something slightly different. In the Old Testament, we do see miraculous healings. We do see evidence of this. Yet in the time period that it covers of several thousand years, there are less than 20 recorded instances of miraculous healings. So over several thousand years, you have less than 20. And and most of those uh, are set out in, in particular periods of time. Less than 20. But then at the outset of Jesus' ministry, there is a healing explosion. In the four Gospels, there are over 40 accounts that are repeated multiple times throughout the Gospel accounts of Jesus' healing ministry. Now, his ministry, when he was on earth, was approximately three years. So you've got over 40 accounts of healing in a period of three years compared to less than 20 accounts of healing over a period of several thousand years. And many of these accounts in the New Testament of Jesus' healing, they're not of single instances, but of whole events where multitudes came to him and he healed them all, like what we find here in this passage. Nothing like this has ever been seen before. But then Jesus 
delegated authority to the 12 and then to the 70 disciples during his earthly ministry. And then after his resurrection uh, in, in Acts, uh, we see that the 12 apostles and then the apostle Paul also exercised healing ministries. Because nothing on the scale of when Jesus walked the earth. And furthermore, the purpose of these healings were to authenticate the message being preached. We saw that last week with Jesus um, uh, when he was in the synagogue, and we'll see that again uh, later in this text. But the New Testament affirms this in in several cases. Places. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 to 4 says this How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? As if we reject the message of the gospel. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the miracles attested to the message. The Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Their mighty works attested to the message. The signs authenticated the message. But when the message became inscripturated, written down, There was no longer need for miraculous proof of its truthfulness. The scriptures, as we read in 2 Timothy, are now sufficient. The New Testament affirms that the healing explosion of Jesus even began uh, to taper down in the years following his resurrection. In Galatians 4, verse 13, Paul speaks of himself having come to Galatia in the first place because he was sick. 1 Timothy 5 verse 23, Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for the sake of his stomach and his frequent ailments. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 20, Paul speaks of of leaving Trophimus, his fellow co-worker, he left him while he was still ill. I believe that this is clear evidence that once the message of the gospel was authenticated, the miraculous signs were no longer needed. We have the truth of the gospel here in the words of scripture. Now Jesus' power over infirmity proved without a doubt that he was the divine son of God. And his healing ministry gives uh, confident assurance that he will bring about the full healing of our bodies at the resurrection. However, the need for physical healing points to the greater need of spiritual healing. Only those whose sins before God are forgiven will experience the full healing in the future. And so as the text shows, Jesus not only has power over infirmity, but secondly, he has power over iniquity power of a sin. The importance in this life of spiritual healing over physical healing is emphasised by the actions that Jesus takes the following day. He demonstrates that the greatest need is a right relationship with God. 
Because you see, even if people receive divine physical healing, there is no guarantee that it will lead to faith in Christ. I mean, how many followers of Jesus were there initially there after his resurrection? It was only 120. Jesus healed multitudes of people throughout his earthly ministry and there was 120 people that were there faithful. As well as this, even if people are physically healed, they will still eventually get sick again and they will still eventually grow old and die. There is no way around that. Physical healing merely forestalls the final inevitability. And that is the consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death, says Paul. It's like handing out blankets on the Titanic. It'll initially stem the cold, but unless the bigger problem is dealt with, unless you get off that boat and into a life raft, you are doomed. It's merely forestalling the inevitable. Matthew quoted from Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Matthew uses the words diseases and illnesses there, but if you look at verse 5 of Isaiah 53, it says, But he, that is the servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus, he brings complete healing. And the most important, the spiritual healing of verse 5 there, leads to the physical healing of verse 4. And so Jesus demonstrates his power over iniquity, his power over sin in two ways. Firstly, in his prayer, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Who knows how late it was into the night before the crowds dissipated and Jesus was finally able to get some sleep. Uh, you can imagine the excitement and the activity uh, that would have surrounded the places as people are made well, the blind are, are recovering their sight, the lame are walking, demons are being cast out, and people are walking around in their right mind for the first time in ages. This would have gone on for a long time. But after all this, Jesus' desire for sleep was trumped by his desire to spend time with the Father in prayer. It was in communion with God that Christ's human nature was re-energized and reinvigorated, recharged. While he was both truly God and truly man, in his humanity, he needed and desired the Father's presence and the empowering of the Spirit. In his earthly ministry... Jesus both provided the example of what a true relationship with God looked like and he also exhorted his people to follow that example. Jesus' prayer life demonstrated his power over iniquity in that his desire for the Father took precedence over all other matters. He didn't experience obstacles or roadblocks in putting aside time to pray like, you know, that we do or in in wondering what he ought to pray. He had perfect communion with the Father because Jesus was without sin. He was without iniquity. Even when we become Christians, 
uh, we still struggle at times to pray. The, the circumstances outside of us, the circumstances within us, they affect us. But we can look forward to a time of perfect communion as well in the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, we are in the power of the Spirit to follow Christ and the Apostles' exhortation to pray unceasingly. But the second way Jesus demonstrates his power over iniquity is in his preaching. Verses 36 to 37. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Word had continued to spread from the previous day. More and more people uh, were coming for healing. Simon and the others uh, were just as captivated by Jesus' display of power and, and the difference it was making in people's lives. If Jesus could just, just come back now, whatever it is you're doing, can you just put that aside for a moment? Come back now to the house. There are all these people waiting. Think of how much difference we could make in them too. But Jesus will not be tempted into thinking, into, into doing something that is less than what he has come to do. Yes, in his healing, he can demonstrate his compassion. Yes, in his healing, he can, can gain a crowd of followers and perhaps, you know, they, they will come to faith through, through seeing these miracles and wonders. But Jesus knows better than that. Healing in and of itself will not have eternal significance. Multitudes were healed in Jesus' day. Multitudes simply just walked away afterwards. Jesus, he has come for something greater. He has come to bring salvation and this through the proclamation of the gospel. Verse 38, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The gospel is Jesus Christ. It is through his life, death and resurrection that sinners can be forgiven and declared righteous before God, that they can experience perfect communion with God. But while Jesus is the gospel, he also preached the gospel God had one son and he made him a preacher. This is why I came out, declares Jesus, to preach. The miracles authenticate the message and the message is that the Messiah has come. The saviour of the world was here and he was and is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus preached the good news that by repentance of sin and faith in him, sinners can be freed of their iniquity. And this divinely instituted method has not changed in the 2,000 years since. It may seem foolish and ineffective. That was the case in Paul's day. It may seem foolish. All these other people have got this amazing rhetoric and amazing show and display Paul just simply came with a message of good news, the same message that Jesus preached. But it's in this foolish message, this seemingly powerless message, that enables us to see the true wisdom and the true power of God. Our passage finishes in verse 39, stating, 
And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus began a preaching tool that may have lasted up to months. And what he did in Capernaum it was repeated wherever he went. He preached and taught, overshadowing the scribes and overpowering the spirits. Let us never be tempted into thinking that the simple proclamation of the gospel is not enough. The fact that Jesus did not let this priority become second, even to the miraculous healing ministry, shows us where our focus should be. The healing power of Jesus is seen in his power over (laughs) infirmity and his power over iniquity. Jesus, the true healer, has the power to do both. But it is this second aspect which is of greatest importance because only when we experience the forgiveness of sins are we guaranteed that our infirmities will truly be overcome in the future. We are called to recognise that our greatest need is fellowship with God. Without Christ, we stand under God's wrath. But with Christ, there is beautiful communion and life everlasting. People don't need a show. People need a saviour. And that is the message Christ preached and it is the message that we must preach too. Not only in responding to this will people come to know the healing power of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much again for your word, for its power and its truth. We thank you for its trustworthiness. Father, we thank you for the people that have come before us who have studied your word and you've worked through them to uh, bring insight and understanding for those who would follow. We thank you for people like Augustine. We thank you for those authors of the harmony of the gospel who uh, worked so hard to show that the Bible is reliable. We thank you that when we open your word, we can see the person of Christ who is the gospel. And it is through him and through faith in him alone that we may experience true healing, that our sins may be forgiven and we may be restored to a right relationship with you. No longer enemies, but now your children. And we look forward to the day where we see your face in the new heavens and the new earth, where we are with you and where there will be no more crying or suffering or pain or tears, but we will stand in that wonderful new creation with indestructible bodies like Christ, free from all suffering and death because of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.